You're listening to Campus Review Radio. Hi, Education Editor Lauren Smith here. Today I spoke with Hugh Kearns, a lecturer and researcher at Flinders University. He spoke this week at the Quality in Postgraduate Research Conference about mental ill health among graduate research students, so I had an in-depth conversation with him about his presentation topic. I thought we could start with your personal experience, if that's relevant, because I assume that you have done a PhD yourself? No, I have not. Oh, you uh, haven't? It's interesting. I, I often get promoted to being Dr. Cairns, but I have not. I have done two master's degrees, but not a PhD. But uh, I've spent the last 25 years, I suppose, working with PhD students and working with through them. So I've had the experience of my own research degrees, but not a PhD. So were your own experiences doing research degrees kind of relevant to choosing to study this area? Uh no, the, the way I got into this area was a bit accident, really. I was um, I, I used to run the staff development and training unit at my university, and people would come to workshops, and uh, they would um, come to workshops, be very enthusiastic, write it all down, but then they would go away and not do any of the things we talked about. So I got intrigued about uh, why people don't do what they're supposed to do. You know, they say they want to do something and don't do it, and so... Uh, that's when I started doing research in psychology, and in particular about why high-achieving people weren't doing what they were saying they wanted to do. And I started working with PhD students through that, and um, then sort of moved more into that area. And, uh, of course, as we started working more closely with the students, then all the other sort of issues started to emerge about, um, for, it's usually not laziness or anything like that, it'll be the circumstances they find themselves in, and then some of the mental health issues relating to this, but also the difficult situations that, that they find themselves in and how that comes up, and then how that affects their progress and making things happen. And so then moved more into that sort of area and probably spent the last 10 or 15 years or so looking at uh, how people can be more effective and how supervisors and the, I suppose, the whole research higher degree system can be more supportive of PhD students, research students. So you mentioned that in doing this research over the last 15 years, you've come across certain themes that Mm, um, produce sort of negative effects in these students. So can you talk a bit about these themes? That's what I suppose I talked about mainly today, I suppose. And and again, these are my experiences rather than, um, I'm not saying there's others as well, but the one that uh, is probably top on my list and uh, I spent a bit of time talking about was what I call toxic supervisors. And these are supervisors, as I said today, these are are not poor supervisors or bad supervisors. They are toxic, which basically means they are very bad people to be around. They will criticize your work mercilessly, humiliate you in public, never provide any support. Uh, You're completely on your own, but seem to go out of their way to to really undermine the confidence and progress of the students. And uh, uh, as everybody in the room today uh, knew who I was talking about, you know, in their institutions, they will know some of these people. And I, the way I said, the way you know them is the trail of broken students around them. You know, they're the people who start off as enthusiastic and then a year later or whatever time are broken and leave or do something else. And uh, they have a huge impact on the mental health of small numbers. It's a very small number of these toxic supervisors, but they have a huge impact on that person's life. 
And my advice was these people should not be supervising. And uh, if, if you know of them, you know, something needs to be done to either stop them directly supervising or put them in a panel where there are other people around or some way of protecting the students because it's um, wrong to um, let students go off and be supervised by these people who are very likely going to cause them stress, distress and probably mental health issues. So that's one, toxic supervisors. It's a small number of supervisors. Most of them are, are fine and doing good jobs, but there's a small number who are really bad. And so that was one of the key ones. And again, I, I know about that well because uh, when I run my workshops all around the world, these are the students who come up to me after the workshop and tell me about the bad things that have happened to them. So that was one. The second one was uh, other supervisors who, um, they're not toxic, and uh, but they're very busy. They have so many other things to do. Uh, the student is one small part of all the stuff they have to do. Uh, they have, they're, they're very clever in their research area, but have no uh, training in supervision or minimal training in supervision. Uh, sometimes they don't even believe in um, the need to be worried about the person side of the business. They're just content to get the, get the data out, get more work done. And again, they will have an impact on students. Uh, it's, it's not as extreme as the toxic supervisors, but it certainly will. Uh, they, you know, they'll have high demands, often very critical as well when they give feedback, uh, very busy, so they're not around very much, uh, leave the student alone and then get upset when things don't happen. So, And again, I'm not blaming these supervisors. They haven't had the support and training they need, but uh, that's a large number of them. The next uh, issue that comes up all the time is about isolation, which is PhD students, research students feel it's just them. Uh, there is no one else really interested in their work. They don't want to talk to the supervisor because that's a bit scary, and so no one else is involved or interested in your particular area. So you're very much left on your own, which is, you know, again, in terms of mental health, the, if you're a little bit concerned or worried, being left all by yourself is the, mur the worries will multiply and become more extreme. And then when they do seek help, maybe from the graduate school or something like that, um, you know, they don't get very clear answers or much support or the, the things they need resolved. And they sort of feel that nobody's really interested or caring about their particular situation. So being very isolated, and that has, uh, you know, a fairly good uh, links to mental health is to be feeling isolated and the whole thing. And the, the other practicalities are just... Students are under a lot of pressure, pressure to finish within time, pressure to publish papers, all these things. And the other one is then they're wondering, will I get a job at the end of all this? And so all these things build together to, um, if, if any student gets all of those things, you know, a really bad supervision, no one supporting you, you're very isolated, uh, things go wrong with your research, that's a fairly good mix for developing some sort of mental health issues, whether they're at the level of clinical mental health, but certainly distress. So um, has this issue become more prevalent uh, over time or is it just that we're more aware of mental health issues now than we yeah, were previously? I think previously? there's a couple of things going on. I think, um, and as I said to, uh, sometimes uh, people will tell me, but this is the way it's always been. You know, there's, there's, um, there's nothing we can do about this. This is uh, policy procedures. People have done PhDs for years, hundreds of times, for decades, and this is nothing different. And uh, the argument I put today is that things are not the same. This is not always the way it was. In Australia, um, over the past 25 years, the number of PhD students, or beginning research students, has increased sixfold. So six times more now, starting PhDs or research than there were 25 years ago. The number of international students in Australia has doubled, has tripled in about the last 10 years. 
but also the types of people doing PhDs are very different now. So now it's people who are working, um, large numbers of international students, uh, people who have less academic background, they might have not done as much before. Um, and so there was much fewer students before. Now we have much more, and but the supervisor support hasn't changed. We, you know, we, it hasn't kept pace with that at all. The pressure to publish during a PhD wasn't there 25 years ago. Now you have to be publishing papers as well as doing a PhD. And what's happened in Australia in more recent times is huge pressure to finish on time. We have to get people out in three years. And that wasn't there before. And, uh, and the reality is almost nobody does finish in three years, but there's this huge pressure to do that. And so I would argue the system has changed a lot. And uh, that's one part. And the second part of your question, I think, is that there's no doubt we talk about it more now. There, were, there was no doubt there were mental health issues before. But uh, now, fortunately, it's more um, okay to talk about that. It becomes more public. And uh, so that, that's part of the reason as well. And what's the incentive for universities to change, given that there's an ever-increasing demand for PhDs? Mm. Yep. Well, first of all, I suppose we've got a couple of demands. One, I would say, and I said to people about these toxic supervisors, I think you have a moral obligation to do something about it. Uh, Basically, people I'm talking about are people in graduate schools or in research um, developer roles. My view is this is part of your role is to provide duty of care to some students. You know, if, if you know they're going to go off and work with this supervisor who has a hugely bad track record, somebody needs to do something about that and um, make sure this doesn't continue. I I referred to a report that uh, was published last year in Australia, uh, Respect Now Always, which was about sexual harassment and sexual assault in Australia. One small section in there was about called the bystander effect. And what that basically said is that uh, the vast majority of students who observed sexual harassment or sexual assault did not intervene and did not do anything about it, did not uh, refer it on. And the reasons they gave were uh, we didn't think it was serious enough or we didn't know what to do. And uh, I was arguing that uh, we have a sort of a bystander effect again with PhDs mental health is, you know, we don't really know what to do. Um, or what, and my argument was it is serious and we do have to do something about it. And so that's, that's first of all, it's the people I'm talking to today, I think they have a, re- they have a need to do that. Um, in terms of why a university should do it, uh, it will be uh, it will impact on their completions. Students get to the other end, um, and uh, they will end up putting resources into trying to sort out problems with uh, students' mental health and issues as they go along. What can yep. students themselves do to address this? Yeah, well, one uh, one important resource that I'm very supportive of is the is CAPA, which is the Council of Australian Postgraduate Associations. I think postgraduate associations are really important. They're very variable across the country in terms of support and funding and things like that. But a good postgraduate association would be an advocate for the student, where someone could go along to those, talk to them in a very confidential and secure place, and get advice. And minimally, just being talked about would be the first step, uh, but getting acknowledgement. Many students are very reluctant to complain through official channels, uh, quite reasonably so, because they're worried if they do that, uh, they will be discriminated against in some way, that it will come back to haunt them, small academic community, and so if you complain about your supervisor, um, this is probably going to be um, career damaging, and so very many students would be very reluctant to complain through official channels. So that's where I think the Postgraduate Association or some student-led body is um, a, a really good support. Also, um, 
think that uh, the key group I were talking to today were in graduate schools, and I was saying to them they need to be open to students. And so that means not just saying come and visit, but going out talking to students, uh, making sure that it's okay to raise these types of issues. Um, when students are not meeting milestones or hurdles, things are going wrong, not just sending out an email saying you've fallen behind, but probably contacting the students and saying, how are things going? Is there something we need to do about this? And using those early warning signs to, to pick up on some of the issues. The students themselves, it, it's really hard for them because they are very isolated. Uh, when you're doing a PhD or research degree, it's just you and your supervisor. And so you don't have a lot of cohorts or people around you. So that's why I think postgrad associations are, are important as a way of doing that. And is there anything else about this issue that you would like to mention? Let's see. I think um, in the UK, and again, you can check this out online. Uh, I think in March this year, the, there's a group called HESCI, Higher Education Funding Council for Education, in the UK, it's now called the Office for Students. Uh, but uh, in May, they gave out £1.5 million in grants spread over about 17 universities to look at mental health issues and support and things that could be done. So it was really to prime the pump and getting things going. And I think that's really good. And I think in Australia, we should be doing something similar like that, where we are raising the issues, putting some funding in to look at options and solutions and just getting this on the agenda and talking more about it. And so that was what I was my message to people today really was most people are fairly aware of these problems but that's not enough they have to do something about it and so argue for funding from government bodies um, the universities or whatever group that may have funding or interest in this topic but begin to start looking say we need to put resources behind this not just um, say this is a problem but do something specific about it so did people who heard your talk today, um, were they receptive to that message? Did they say that they wanted to act on this? Yes, yes. I was a bit concerned about how they were going to feel because I was basically telling them, you know, you, you need to do more. Uh, but I think most people uh, nodded and agreed, yes, that this is a problem. You know, they're very aware of it because they see these day to day. Um, but sometimes not very really clear what's required or what to be done. And I suppose the idea, my my. The suggestion was you have to start arguing and look for more support in these. I think uh, most people would probably agree with that and uh, would hopefully go off and do something, start lobbying within their own university and then more widely to say we have to put some effort behind some of these things. The other point I suppose I should say, that um, again talking to the group today, was I was saying, uh, again quoting those figures, where it's saying you know, one in five uh, in, in the Australian population and there's a study that you should probably get was published by Ghent University in Belgium in May last year I think and according to that study about a third of their respondents had symptoms of mental health issues so that's a third, that's a lot of people and so what I was saying to them is when, when you're sending out an email to a student or sending them information you need to remember that a third of those people might not be in a very good place and might not respond very well if you're telling them things aren't going well, here's your problems, that might not go well. And so be aware of that. And so be a little bit more thoughtful in the way you communicate uh, the ideas to bear in mind as a person at the other end. And I suppose that's something that they can do very easily. It doesn't require any more money. It just means being aware of the needs that are happening at the other end and there's people there as well. Yeah, it's amazing what a difference uh, a bit of personality can make in an email. That's right. <laughs> 
Yeah, and uh, and again, I suppose what uh, one that I was talking about contact officers. Most universities have contact officers, but the onus there is for the student to contact them. And I'm saying, well, hang on, maybe we should go out and contact the students. You know, if the student is falling behind or things haven't worked so well, maybe we contact them and say what's going on, uh, rather than you're you're at risk of failing or whatever. But um, what can we do to support you? And again, I think some, very, again the, some of those things don't require masses of funding, but they do require a bit of effort to. Um, take the initiative and to see what's going on. And again, as you point out, that can make a lot of difference to the students. Thank you for speaking with me about this and um, yeah. I hope that your message resonates, especially given that you're at the conference. I really appreciate your time.